I'm Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, and this is the Manufacturing Report. You know, we lean into the brand of American made ourselves, but more importantly, we lean into local heritage and story. It's not even just American made, it's a mystic relic, it's something that belongs to place. So some good news for all of you holiday shoppers. After months of planning and research, the Alliance for American Manufacturing staff has published its ninth annual Made in America holiday gift guide. And in it, you can now find great gift ideas for products from all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and Puerto Rico. Now, one of our favorite parts of putting the guide together is discovering new makers and manufacturers, so we wanted to spotlight one that came to our attention just this year. I will say that putting this guide together is one of our favorite things that we do all year, and it's a great opportunity to discover new makers and manufacturers across the country. Today, we're taking a closer look at one of those companies, Mystic Knotwork of Mystic, Connecticut where owner Matt Bedoin is tying family tradition with modern business to preserve the art of nautical knots. We will talk to this master artisan next on the Manufacturing Report. Hey, Matt, thank you so much for joining us on the Manufacturing Report podcast. Thanks, Scott. So why don't you tell our listeners, a little bit about your family's nautical artisan heritage, because my understanding is that it goes back uh, quite a ways. Is that right? It goes back into the 1800s. My uh, great-grandfather, Sam, was born between ports up uh, Lake Champlain, and the tugboat he was born on was owned by my great-great-grandfather. So that's both kind of my earliest knowledge of us being in the maritime trades and also our entry into the country. That is a, a significant heritage. And Mystic Knotwork itself has been around for a number of decades now. It was your grandfather who started that up. Is that correct? My grandfather started a little business tying decorative knotwork. He called it Bedoin's Rope Locker. We state the company started in 1957. That was the year his first piece of art won the Mystic Art Show. And that's the first time I have him in the newspaper to actually define a date. It's one of those family businesses that doesn't really have a solid start date, but predates that by quite a bit also. I take it that when you were growing up in this family, that this was all around you. At what point or at what age do you remember getting involved? I don't remember getting involved in it. I, what I do remember was when I was eight years old, I went on a bicycle and instead of getting handed the, you know, the money or the bicycle, I was told to tie some stuff to my grandfather and he paid <laughs> me 10 cents a piece for them. And I saved up and I by the middle of summer, I had my I had a bicycle I bought from uh, Schwinn Bicycle in Westerly. And Matt, as you pursued your own kind of professional career, you didn't start out as the lead artisan for Mystic Knotwork. What was your journey before taking over the family business? My lead into taking over the family business was about as far from the business as you could get. I won the uh, second place in the energy division of the state science fair in my senior year of high school. And my grandfather made me promise I would never take this business and do anything with it. I pursued an engineering degree. I ended up working hospital IT. I did consulting work for a consultant company that worked with 72 companies in the three-state area. And I was one of their on-sites to problem solve and do things and got to see marketing departments, got to see all sorts of manufacturing centers, everything from power plants to hospitals to dynamite factory 
insurance, all, name any industry in Connecticut, I'd probably been in one of their buildings. And I got to see a lot of stuff and really pulled at my entrepreneurial strings and wanted to do something again. I guess this is where I talk about uh, briefly getting frustrated with the corporate grind and wanting to just try something for my own. And my grandfather's little business was my crafts hobby business that I was doing on weekends and decided to try to do what I could do with it. Yeah, I was curious about that, is that if if you had maintained that connection to the, your grandfather's artisan business, and then what inspired you to get more engaged with that, Matt? It was, it's, it's, it's the funny, stubborn, Swamp Yankee stuff. Like my uncle and I were at Christmas dinner one day, and we we're talking about how a person's history, unless they're seriously notable, doesn't transcend three generations in their own family. So Part of it was keeping my grandfather's memory alive as a World War II veteran and somebody who is key within this micro niche of uh, nautical arts that he and his knowledge predates the Encyclopedia of Knots and a few other books that are hallmarks of the industry. And I kind of did it as an homage to my grandfather to uh, prove a point to my uncle. My grandfather's name is more well known in the world now posthumous than he was while he was alive. Well, that's quite a legacy, Matt. and. I understand, and I think this is really interesting because just taking a big step back, we run into this question all the time is that American-made consumers say they want American-made products, but getting them to pony up for them, because sometimes there can be a price difference because of quality and uh, sourcing and obviously paying fair wages and all of that. There's a lot that goes into it, as you know, but I understand that that issue, seeing if consumers were willing to put their money where their mouth is, really, with respect to some of the, the crafts you were producing, was a really inspiring challenge for you. Is that right? It was the most fun of it, because when my grandfather left the wholesale side of the trade back in 96, he left me with five accounts, and that was it. And in the meantime, the knockoff import market had kind of taken over. You could still see most of the market is still import. And it made it very easy for me to market because what I was doing in the beginning was I would just make a small sample package of my knots, hand deliver, donate them to the, to the gift shops or the retail outlets, let them sell them and ask them to price them above the price to my competition, but right next to it. And when they uh, sell out, use that seed money to make your first order. And I made that deal, which is a hard deal to refuse because what's the sure. worst you can do? You take, you take my product, take my money and don't ever talk to me. But out of 50 drops, it left to 35 to 40 customers out of that for no real marketing costs. It was just me driving around a, a couple of towns and stuff. And that was a proof of concept to me. And by 2008, I was in turnaway mode. I, wasn't, I was too, too big for a one-man operation, but not big enough for a two-man operation. And it was kind of interesting. So I was still working full-time, had a full part-time job, basically, doing my business. Mm. With none of that risk, the real issue was raw material sourcing and actually making a differentiable quality. That's a lot of work because it sounds like you had full-time jobs, you know, two of them, and you had ambitions with respect to Mystic Knot work. So at what point did you decide to focus a little bit more on it and to try to scale it up to what it's become today? I started focusing on uh, 2008. There was some changeovers in, in the corporate job and in my consulting work. And I kind of knew that I'd hit the, the, the ceiling of what they were willing to let me do. I was too good for my role to be allowed to advance past it. 
And I started building this up as my side income to overcome wage stagnation issues. Sure. And then it was one day I'm sitting down at my, on, my, on my couch, getting ready to get to work, fiddling on some of my string while I was waiting for you know, the time to leave and realized I actually made more money per hour sitting on my couch than I did driving to work and going. Mm. And it made it an easy decision. I just had to scale what I was currently doing. It was a time risk, not a proof risk. And so obviously there's a lot when you're scaling up a small enterprise like that. One of the challenges I know you probably faced is your supply chain and finding the right raw materials because you've built your reputation on quality. I understand that was quite a journey. Yeah, it was basically it titled as I have a I have a plastic tote full of paper bags of rope. My grandfather had collected scrap from his work starting in the 30s all the way through till I think mid 80s is when the is when that ended with this with the sampling. And I would send SNPs to these companies and most of them would just never hear back. They'll probably sent out a hundred sample requests to people in North America and uh, overseas. I finally got three companies to connect got some stuff that was pretty decent quality, actually really good quality, so I used one of them. But it cost me about 1996 to 2006 or eight was just me trying to get more material sourcing to the level I wanted it to be at. Mm. I was hand dyeing material. I was doing a lot of the pre-process work myself, didn't have industrial industrialist scale at all. And um, I ended up connecting back up with my, my grandfather's previous supplier's grandson, who was still in the trades and he knew some, he knew some names that weren't on, on, on the Thomas register and weren't on the map. And he was able by 2012, we actually had all the material you see in our color selections and stuff online is just unbelievably high quality professional outfit. You know, Bill is a true trade partner in the marketplace and instrumental to my business. And that relationship that he and um, that Alton, my grandfather and Mike formed before I was born really had a huge effect. So Matt, you've built this into a successful enterprise. You've tracked down a supply chain that is high quality. Mm-hmm. I'm curious because I'm sure you know you get in-shop visits. People probably visit you in Mystic. You, there's the online resources that you have. Okay. What are folks in the market for, for this nautical artisan craft work that you do? What are, what are your big sellers, I guess, during the holidays and then year round as well? We have about 60,000, 70,000 walk-in customers every year. Wow. We're selling on um, Amazon, Etsy, our own website, and a little bit on eBay. The biggest seller we have is still that traditional weight bracelet my grandfather taught you how to make in Cruising World back in February of 1980. That's like the signature thing for our, our line, though the white coaster is equally popular. And it's Christmas time, our ornaments are unbelievably popular, and they're a lot of fun to make. And it's fun to hear people... Or go on Instagram and see Christmas trees posted on and see our stuff mixed in with everything, just like the elf and various other things. It's becoming kind of fun, like a where's Waldo of our own work. And it's kind of- <laughs> yeah. Do you just, I, when I talk to made in America, small and mid-sized businesses that have a very consumer facing product, you know, the last quarter around the holidays tends to be the busiest. Is that also the case, Matt, for you? Not really. Mystic Knotwork is on the drawbridge in Mystic, the Mystic River, the number one tourist attraction in the state. And you can see it from our front door. Ah. So we are very, very much a June, July, August walk-in business. And you can't beat that location. You can almost kayak to our door. But Christmas is doing well for us. There's 
there's magazines that feature like to feature our Christmas ornaments and things every year. They pick a different ornament and show up. And that's made a huge change because of the crisis in, of COVID and all that. My community actually rallied around us and a couple other companies tried to really help us survive that. And that gave us an amazing boost in the Christmas season the last couple of years because people were buying in for gifts for all their friends and family and shipping out all over the country, as well as our online store blasted up as big as it ever was in August for a couple of months, you know, last two years. So Matt, you mentioned that obviously your market changed a bit during the course of the pandemic because those visits to your storefront or to your workshop probably diminished rapidly. But I know that there were a lot of supply chain impacts for folks as well. How did it land for you? It was scary. I saw the crisis coming in February that year. And um, I emptied the warehouses of all my suppliers of everything I could possibly use, put them in my own warehouse, cashed them, put the money in, which is probably the scariest thing I've ever done. Because as a seasonal business, we were already four months of dry. Our state got shut down for two and a half months. I wasn't allowed to see a customer. We made some uh, improvements and I managed to make it through the entire year of 2020 without an additional purchase because I had so much inventory on hand because I have everything custom made for me. I tend to carry about 18 months lead inventory of all my products anyway. So I was actually able to weather this and it's kind of a fly in the face of lean manufacturing that I've mentioned a couple of times in that because I have to order in such high quantities, I was able to weather the storm and actually early 2021 was tougher because my suppliers didn't realize I was still operating at the level I was and thought I'd gone out of business or something. So I had to restart some production and raw material manufacturing to get this year to work out right. January, February this year was actually tougher than any other months I've had in supply chain. Thank you for sharing that. I know that there were a lot of firms, small and large, who experienced uh, massive disruptions with all of that. And one thing that I think everyone agrees on is that there is a new normal. It's not going to be precisely the way that it was, but it's probably a normal that favors companies that have a big domestic footprint for things. So I would say small artisan Crafts folks who've uh, focused on that, like yourself, are probably in a better space than a lot of other folks might be. We're in a nimble environment. During that whole mess, we were still able to sell online and international shipments weren't able to supply their way through into the resale market. So we had direct to customer in 2020 online was, we were three, four times better than any year we've ever had because we were the only game for four months. Because everything else had dried up that was available through the you know resellers because people were suffering, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, indeed they were. We've seen nationally, I think, more awareness. And maybe it was brought about by the supply chain shortages during the pandemic, or sometimes it's you know the way the economy is doing. But but there seems to be a bit more awareness about American-made products and the virtues of them, whether it's quality or supporting the local economy or not having to rely on things that may not get here. And I'm wondering if you've noticed that as well, perhaps in your own business, but also, I guess, a little more broadly. I think when it comes to American-made and it's and what's going on in the community, you know, we lean into the brand American-made ourselves, but more importantly, we lean into local heritage and story. It's not even just American-made, it's a mystic relic. It's something that belongs to place. And I'm seeing 
there's um, quilters in Texas that use indigenous dyes down there and are really dialing it in tight. And in 2012, Martha Stewart started an American made project of herself and she took it to the national stage for small artisans like us. And I think that's really reap benefits around the entire world to focus down on American made as placemakers as much as product makers. Yeah, I hear you there. I know that the the Martha Stewart conduit was one big one. I remember talking to a a family-owned marble making operation, literally the marbles that you played with as kids uh, that was based in West Virginia that got a lift up from that as well. So it sounds like that's been helpful uh, to to, to you and to Mystic Network. A lot of us have been doing this for decades and nobody realizes that it's possible to do. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort to replace a typical wholesale income. You know, if you're working for somebody else who sells a service or product, there's a middleman's markup that covers, you know, the infrastructure. And it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to create a retail income off of your retail work. If there's no additional overheads in it, the transition from being a single artisan, just scratching by enough to pay the rent is a little different than trying to hang on to and prosper a staff of 22 employees. That's a different can of worms, but the transition, you know, Martha really helped make that look accessible and available. And by interviewing and talking with people like us, and I'm honestly, I'm out of loop a little bit, so I can't remember, but Martha, uh, Hannah Millman was the, probably the, the most instrumental person in the, in the cast that really, really helped us all foster and develop into businesses. Well, well, that's fantastic. Um, and, and Matt, I, I'm curious, uh, you know, you've, you've launched this. Um, you, yeah, I'm going to say that again. Sorry, Kat. So Matt, I'm curious, you've, you know, you've been engaged with uh, the family business for a, for a while and you've been uh, running it full time for, you know, since 2008. Um, uh, what do you see uh, ahead? for for mystic not work because on, on the one hand you know it's a very traditional prod uh product uh you know and and it's a craft that's been around for a long time um but it also seems like uh you know th- there's there's a real interest as you said in that that local story and having that connection to place so where do you hope things go over the next couple of years it's really funny to be talking with you this week because over the weekend, my, my wife finally uh, bumped into the lean manufacturing and principles. And the things I talk about throughout the last and cards and things we've been running, she didn't know where they came from, came from my corporate job and the same principles. And right now we're fiddling around with ideas of custom making some tools to help smooth out the process and take away anybody who's into manufacturing that's used to handwork. You, you put down the file, you pick up the, the shears, you put down the shears, you pick up the spot welder, you put down the spot welder, you pick up the file knows that those tool transitions are everything about time and time and time is money. And we're now starting to entertain that. And the idea that I'm talking to a manufacturing expert community and I'm taking what is traditionally a, a Luddite's hobby and there's a high-tech backbone that you don't get to see in supply chain management that I've been using for 20 years. Now we're in a tools phase, which is going to change everything if we can get things to work just custom design clamps and things, but I don't know where to start. I don't know how to find the tinkerers and the geniuses who know how to make metal do magic in a mechanical world. Hmm. 
Interesting. It's kind of a weird place coming from it. My grandfather's a pure artist. He was a pipe fitter and a submarine maker by trade, but his passion was in pure artistry. And then I come at it from his artistic background, but with no trades background. I have an IT background in my education. So I, I'm coming from a community that doesn't understand hard process improvement and hard manufacturing stuff. And the business mm-hmm. is scaling into the cut of reality that is place and space and story, but at the same time being conscious of the more efficient the company can run, the better I can play my team. The better my team pays, the happier they are, and everybody everybody wins. That makes perfect sense. Well, Matt, thank you so much for sharing some of the story of Mystic Knotwork and your journey and your commitment to craftsmanship and place and uh, localization. It's inspiring and very grateful for your time. Thanks, Scott. It was great talking to you, too. You can browse Mystic Knotwork's online shop at mysticknotwork.com, or you can visit their brick-and-mortar location in downtown Mystic, Connecticut. And please don't forget to check out the Alliance for American Manufacturing's newly released 2022 Made in America Holiday Gift Guide for more great manufacturers and makers to support this holiday season. You can find the guide at AmericanManufacturing.org. As always, I want to thank AAM staff and Kat Adams in particular for their great work to make this episode possible. And I'd also like to thank you, the listeners, for engaging with us and for giving us some great episode ideas. Please keep them coming. Also, be sure to subscribe to the Manufacturing Report wherever you listen to your podcasts. And let us know what you think by leaving a review and a rating. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram, and you can connect with us on Twitter at Keep It Made in USA. I'm Scott Paul, and until next time, together we can keep it made in America.